Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Barnard. And I'm Victor Gamow. In this series, we chat with software developers and technology leaders to tackle your biggest API connectivity challenges. Stay tuned to this episode for tools, tactics, strategies that will help you to take your distributed architectures to the next level. Let's begin. And today I'm super excited that I have Ben Greenberg, developer advocate from Orbit, and uh, Ben here to talk to us about some language agnostic tools and how they use GitHub Actions at Orbit. Ben, welcome to Comcast. Thank you so much for having me, Victor. I am so delighted to be joining you on Comcast. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation. Before we start, before we jump right into the topic about all these automations and all these things, can you talk a little bit about yourself? Like, uh, what do you do and how you end up in the world of uh, developer advocacy? Like, it's it's going to be a little bit meta podcast because uh, the Orbit helps developer advocates and the community leaders and uh, other specialists who engage with the you know live audience, with developers, with system administrators, and all sorts of people. Uh, around the community? That is a very good question. I feel asking any developer advocate how you ended up in developer advocacy could always be a fascinating question to ask because we all have our own journeys, how we ended up in this bit of a particular and a little bit of a niche role, which I love. It's one of the most favorite things I've ever done in my life. Uh, so I ended up as a developer advocate. I was a, a developer for a bit at a, uh, uh, a financial services corporation in New York. And I, you know, it was great work building algorithms to calculate residuals and a lot of SQL, more SQL than I ever wanted to do again in my entire life. And at some point, I discovered there was this role where you could take off the headphones once in a while, get away from the keyboard and communicate with other developers and understand their needs and feed those needs back into the products that you're working on and help inform the engineering and the product teams and iterate on the products from that perspective of the developer. In essence, you can be the developer user number zero in, a, in the product cycle of development. And I discovered this role and it was called developer advocacy. I'm like, this is amazing. And uh, so I uh, applied for a few roles and I ended up at a communications API company for about two and a half years working on their voice API product line and on their SMS API product line. And uh, I got uh, to do some amazing stuff with SDKs and met thousands of developers and uh, open API specifications and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And now I ended up here at Orbit and we build tooling to help communities uh, grow and understand the insights and data around their members, how to uh, really fully understand who their community is and build a unified picture of that community growth. That sounds exciting. It's also very, very much aligned with the thing how I like to see developer advocacy. It's exactly like developer zero, um, kind of like a patient zero. Uh, exactly. Fun that we like to talk about this one before. Engineer will engineer features. Like it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. But I like to say that we have this like a unique uh, position where we can influence some of the you know developments because we know usually we know how the people use our software right that's why we're here so we we also partially technical <laughs> partially technical I had this conversation sometimes like, uh, this week you know. yeah I have to uh, show my credentials that I'm you know also technical I'm not just a uh, token face so um, 
and uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the many things that we do is is all about learning our users, learning what they do and how we can help them better. And um, specifically, you know, how we can help them better, we need to understand their problem first. You know what and how we can understand the problem. There's plenty of ways where the people go and complain in the internet, right? And uh, Orbit actually helps to aggregate those places where the people complain so we can understand where to find the, the valuable information. Exactly. Where they complain, where they discuss things, where they share feedback and ideas. So if you, one of our fundamental principles that we believe in at Orbit, and I think this will really resonate, is that community doesn't just happen on a single platform. Right. Community happens on a Twitter thread. It happens in discourse. It happens on Discord. It happens on Stack Overflow questions and answers. It happens on Reddit, subreddits. It happens on comments on YouTube. And it can be really hard. And this is something I, I get actually a lot of feedback on. It can be really hard to understand a single member of your community across all the different places that they exist on. And so one of the cool things that Orbit does is it gives you that aggregated, collated member uh, unit across all those platforms. So it's a single member with multiple identities. And that's actually kind of language we use, right? So it's a one-to-many relationship. You have a single member and they can have an identity on Stack Overflow, an identity on several blogging platforms, an identity on you know, GitHub and identity on GitLab, identities all over the place. And we bring those all together for you and offer analytics and reporting to help you engage and understand their, uh, their particular needs in a bit more of a, I would say, coherent fashion. Yeah, it sounds like a very much um, real world implementation of this meme where you see kind of a bunch of pictures like this is me on Twitter, this is me on GitHub, this is me on LinkedIn, <laughs> this is me on Instagram. And the different exactly. photos that uh, show you like different ways. That's exactly what Orbi does, essentially. <laughs> it's just, it's a, based, based on our discussion, based on our conversation. And one of the things that um, uh, the good about the show is that we will get to show you what the band was talking about. So it's like stick stick around and stay with us. We will demo some of some of the product features. So how how long have you been with the Orbit uh, uh, at this point? So as you know, uh, there's human years and there's, and there's developer advocate years, and they're not exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, so I've been in human years. I've been in Orbit for about six months, and in that six months, we have done so much. You know, we're a very fast paced nimble startup. When I joined, I was employee number 10. And mm-hmm. now we're, we're on the cusp of about 25 employees or so in the past six months, which in real terms is a lot of growth really fast. And uh, it's been an adventure. So six months in human terms, quite longer in developer advocate yeah. terms. <laughs> so like the reason for this question is kind of like a build up like I want to understand like what did you learn? Maybe like some of the three fascinating facts about where the people interact more or where developers interact more. What would be, say, you know, we're talking to some prospects and we're telling them, hey, you know, there's some of the um, some of the communities that you need to be engaged on Stack Overflow or Reddit or, you know, forget about Reddit. It will not fit in your profile in your organization because your users usually not hang out there. Maybe your users will hang out on GitHub discussions and Twitter. So, like, Something, you know, maybe you, you have some like eye openers and some of the things that you learn and say, wow, I, I, yeah, I didn't know that like before I started you know, doing this research. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, what I've discovered is that there isn't really a one size fits all perspective when it comes to this. 
And actually, every kind of niche developer community has its own niche platforms in which it's existing on and preferential spaces that they kind of occupy. And, you know, without overgeneralizing too much, but, uh, you know, there's something you said about game devs kind of occupy certain spaces more than, you know, financial services developers might occupy. And, you know, communities around developer tooling might occupy different spaces. And then that's on kind of like the macro level, but even on the more micro level, even different product lines, even different toolings within the same kind of space will have different emphasis depending on what they do. And actually, I would say a lot of that depends on where you as a company or you as a product community initially invest in creating spaces. And so, you know, a lot of uh, initial product communities do a bit of a scattershot approach when they're first starting. And so they, they're a bit of uh, on everywhere. They're everywhere at the same time. So that means you've created a lot of disparate spaces for people to exist on. And so then it becomes a bit more challenging as you grow. It gets actually exponentially harder as you keep on growing to manage all those different places. That's one side. The other side is you may, be, you may have been very focused initially and you may say, I only want to really generate conversations on, I created a discourse instance, for example. And that's my, that discourse instance is where I really want questions and answers and community support. But then your members start going on Twitter all the time and raising questions and they get feedback on there. So they're getting, they're getting that sense of like responsiveness to those questions. And suddenly Twitter becomes a more active space, even in ways you haven't uh, or didn't necessarily anticipate or even necessarily want desired. Some of it is like, some of it is you lead the community and others, the community is leading you. And you have to kind of be in the moment with them and understand where it's happening and where it's growing organically. So I, I, that didn't really fully answer that question, Victor. I kind no, of answered without actually, answering. No, no, no. That's actually a perfect answer. And uh, this also will give the perspective for our listeners as well. It, there's like when you try to build a community, it's not like you will be surprised in terms of you trying to people like steer somewhere, but the, to quote Jeff uh, Goldblum, nature will find a way from the Jurassic Park. Nature will find a way. The, the user will find a way how they can organize. And what's important to understand is that like, you know, if they self-organize somewhere, just need to help them. So do not try to, you know, to break this habit and to try to steer them somewhere. Just be there where they are. That's your purpose, essentially. So not true. where you want them to be. You know, eventually they will be, but it, it requires trust and patience. But, you know, it's be so there. It's so true. That's such a good point. So that's that's my kind of like a, a rule of thumb of thinking about like where to interact with, uh, with our users. So... Since we're talking about all these communities and all these things, like integrating this stuff would be really hard. You need to, you know, manually parse the HTML pages. You need to do all these kind of things, right? So that's how you do uh, in the modern days. Just like start the, write the, the bot and the start scrapping the pages and analyze these pages, right? Exactly. You know, it's kind of a, a bit of a, of a big proposition that the product took was that you give us data and we will help consolidate it, aggregate it, and present it to you in a way that's meaningful through reporting and analytics. That's a huge proposition to take, which means we need to be capable of absorbing and offering you multiple pathways to bring in that data from what is honestly an ever-growing list of community tools. You yep. know, so when I, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the past six months, there are so many community platforms that are popping up all the time. I'll give you one example, which from my own ignorance, I didn't even know about until a few months ago, 
was a platform called Circle. I don't even know if you're familiar with it. No, but I had no idea about it, right? So I didn't know what it was. And suddenly I was getting communities of product uh, coming and asking about how we can create integrations and connectivity between the interactions happening on Circle and and feeding that into Orbit to help give the more comprehensive picture of their users and user engagement. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what Circle was. So the first thing I had to do was go, to my search bar, I'm like, what is Circle? And then, you know, that reality TV show from Netflix popped up first, like the <laughs> Circle dating show. I'm like, no, not that Circle, a different Circle. Oh, Naming is ingenious sometimes. Right. <laughs> if you remember, so, remember you the know, times of the early Web 2.0, we kind of like understood that this startup or like the service or something is actually from the uh, Web 2.0 era. It should have something like a er at the end. Twitter, Tumblr, Tumblr, and, Twitter, uh, yeah, the other other things, and uh, usually you know you're throwing some of the uh, some of the letters there, so it looks cool. But now it, it's getting ambiguous, I would say, right, with the circle. Like, oh, what, what is that? Like, yes. okay, what is that? You yeah, know? I remember the '90s when everything had to have an E in front of it in order yeah. to be a, a real digital I, service. Uh, yeah, yeah, e shop, um, like e business. Right. I still remember the uh, running some of the IBM um, computers and boot server starts ready for e-business <laughs> oh, okay it's uh it's no fun here it's just the biz- only business here so exactly with integration this these services like integration this platform like i was joking like for people who was like thinking like what victor's talking about like scrapping internet i was actually joking because it's a podcast about connectivity a podcast about apis you know and we're living in the world post web point two era and uh, one of the factors, one of the components of the service that would belong to Web.0 is like exposing the APIs. So users can create the more like user-generated content based on the sum of the data. So that's why we were looking to integrate to the certain systems through sets of APIs. And uh, that's where we you know, want to spend some of the time uh, discussing this type of stuff. So. Does the Circle thingy has an API so you can easily integrate with uh, with your platform? Circle does have an API. Using that example, which I think is a really good example of kind of, I would say, and I'm sure you agree with me on this, sort of like the evolution of SaaS products nowadays. They all, as you just said, have to have an API that goes along with them that's externally accessible and available. So here's a new, relatively new community platform that offers a lot of value to its members and they want to integrate that data. And immediately out of the box, they offer API functionality to their users. So you don't have to scrape the website. You know, you don't have to try and, you know, use Nokogiri or something to try and find the HTML tags and get the data. You, there's a REST API that you can use. And sometimes it's a REST API, sometimes GraphQL API, kind of depends on the engineering team and their, their preferences. But Whatever it is, it's usually there and it may require OAuth and require a bearer token. Uh, you know, they all kind of do their own thing and the structure they're trying to figure out as long as it's secure is really what's most important at that point. But it's there. Yes. And the most important uh, with the emergence of the protocols like um, uh, OAuth is really not about security, but I would do like a little bit more like a philosophical. It's about like understanding like what access you as a user providing to the service provider. Like, I like the uh, some of the presentations when the people start explaining the off and they bringing up this old times of, um, what is that, like uh, Yelp? 
when the Yelp were asking you to enter your email and password in order them to send uh, emails about this new cool service called Yelp to your contact list. And uh, the protocol like OAuth is actually helps users to understand what kind of data APIs will be able to share. So like right. when you connect to this, uh, these platforms, um, those API levels will be graded by, you know, th th certain access. You can access to certain APIs. You cannot access to certain API. You can restrict this. You as a user and the owner of this data, you will be able to restrict and uh, tell where this stuff is coming from. Like, and uh, most importantly, like who will be able to see it. And uh, this right. this type of things is becoming like more important in the recent years, uh, based on the, you know, the things that happened in, uh, in Facebook uh, uh, and mm. uh, how this data was used, and uh, um, so all this kind of information is, is very important in terms of like uh, there were issues with Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have issues with Facebook. I don't have a Facebook. Like I do have a Facebook, but I don't really um, I don't really use it recently, and uh, I'm kind of happy, happy about this. So <laughs> your life is probably a bit better for it. Yeah. Yeah. But like still cannot give up Twitter. It's my, my thing. So speaking about the API. So what's your take on the APIs? You prefer raw APIs or you prefer SDKs? Since you have a view to this point as an expert, being the engineer and the developer advocate who work with the company who provides API, now you work with the company who consumes the API. So what is your like take on this like do you prefer so actually like we do APIs? a bit of both right uh -huh. we consume apis and we provide an api so we're kind of in in that middle space i actually think you have to answer that question by asking another question which is what is the need that you are trying to provide for your users and an api is a tool to help accomplish a need and so you have to first wrestle with that primary question and i think at the most fundamental level, the answer to that primary question is you're trying to help your users accomplish and solve problems as expeditiously and as um, painlessly and maybe as enjoyably as possible. So if those are my goals, if that's what I want to accomplish and I have a few tools in my tool belt, I think I need to solve that with the tools I have. And my goal as a developer advocate is to help, and I think you might agree with this, is to help uh, my users do that, solve things expeditiously, painlessly, and joyfully. And so SDKs kind of, what they do is abstract a lot of that work out of you, out of the domain of the developer building something. They don't have to worry about the peculiarities of the API or figure out pagination because you know every API does pagination a little differently. They don't need to think about all those little nuanced details. What they only need to think about is I need to solve this problem. What is the function or the method that I can invoke in this SDK to accomplish that for myself? And does the SDK help me do that in a way that's faster, more expedited, easier than just making the HTTP calls to the API myself? If the API only makes HTTP calls to an SDK and that's all it does, I would actually argue it doesn't really serve a purpose. You could, most developers can write HTTP calls whenever language they're, they're developing in. And SDK's goal is to actually do a lot more about that, is to wrap that and provide an, another layer of handling errors and handling pagination and thinking about, you know, what goes wrong and how to handle when things go wrong and all the different kind of questions and problems and take that out of the, off the shoulders of the developer building something 
so they can focus on what they're building and less about the tool they're building um, with. Yeah, it makes uh, it makes total sense. Sometimes, um, um, and I like your answer about like it's because it's a little bit of both. Sometimes when the people just starting to do some things, they want to have like a fast track to get something done. So in this case, the SDKs like properly designed and the SDK that will have some of the idiomatic constructs that the people will easy to uh, grasp in the language that they use. But we do have uh, like uh, 10x developers who have opinions about this and like they start looking, okay, so this is DK using some library that I don't like because blah, because it's not uh, reactive. It's not, or maybe it's uh, too reactive or and I'm, people, I'm exaggerating here. Do not uh, go and start typing comments and saying, Victor, what are you talking about? There's no too much reactive <laughs> thing. Um, but I'm trying to say that SDK should not do more than you can do with API. So everything that you do still needs to be available through through API if people decide to come up with some alternative implementation or whatnot. Um, Absolutely. Yes, sometimes, like, totally. uh, uh, like, like Ben mentioned, the convenience and the idiomatic um, the framework use I think it's one of the most important uh, selling points of using SDK versus API. So let, let's talk about this a little bit. So you um, you probably seen that uh, different APIs come in different shapes and forms. You already mentioned that some of the services expose GraphQL, like GitHub version three API exposing GraphQL now, which is previous versions they were exposing um, just a REST, like a traditional REST API. What's the most um, exotic thing that you've seen? Uh, in terms of like uh, what service exposing some, maybe the subservice still exposes like a SOAP or like XML gRPC or XML RPC type of thing. I believe the WordPress still exposes XML RPC, right? Uh, for, for publishing stuff. I believe that's correct. You know, honestly, nowadays you don't, I don't really find a lot of those exotic APIs so much. They've kind of uh, standardized. You know, yeah. I don't know. How about you, Victor? Do you still see any of these exotic things out there in the wild too much anymore? So I think uh, we, we, we charged this about a little bit when you were talking about like financial services and things like that. Unfortunately, not every bank is still exposed the uh, APIs in the right. form that we want to consume. Like uh, there are some of the banks that still require you instead of like using off in order to you kind of as a user logged into to your website, you still need to do, you know, provide these username and password. And after that, some of the services will be able to connect to your bank. That's unfortunate. There is a actually, you know, fellow developer that gets, I think, and uh, business uh, owners in the financial industry, think about this. It's a, it's a huge opportunity to, um, but, you know, the banks and financial institutions, they more, they, they always were more conservative about like use of technology. They, they, they were dealing with, you know, Big stuff here. So that's like most exotic things that I see in the real world. And I'm still like, really? In 2021, you cannot uh, provide the uh, normal API? If I see that kind of abnormal authorization patterns, like almost like dark patterns or anti-patterns yeah. nowadays, it, it kind of like throws me off. And I don't, I actually will stay away from that API Yeah. because what else is going on wrong there? You know, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about working in the financial services industry because I have a lot of things to say, but I probably can't by legal contract. But there's a lot of stuff that happens under the hood that you see as an engineer working in one of these companies 
that would make you second guess doing business with the financial services world at large. Not to say any one specific company, just at large, but having seen that, it's kind of like when you're a cook in a fast food restaurant, you never want to eat in a fast food place ever again. You know, yeah. so it's, it's a, kind of a similar experience. But those are red flags for me, you know, when I see those anti-patterns for authorization because they, they make me think, well, what else is happening if that, yeah. if that kind of bad behavior is happening there? Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it sounds like a, a really not enough investment into the modernization of the, of the but like, anyway, I think uh, there's opportunity there and uh, there are totally. leaders who understand this and they also, you know, the, the fighting their ways uh, to, to provide the, to make the world a better place in the financial services. Let's talk about how you would integrate this. And you can talk a little bit about just like overall technology that you use. So I can set up the problem first, a couple problems, right? We wanted to address. One was we wanted to enable people to build tooling to connect third-party APIs and their data to Orbit. And we wanted them to be able to build that tooling in whatever language that they wanted to build in. So if they were a Node.js developer to be able to build an NPM package, if they were a Python developer to build Python packages, if they were a Ruby developer to build Ruby gems, right? We didn't want a privilege and say, you have to build this in in this language if for .NET and C Sharp and .NET, and it's all we're gonna accept or only go or you know whatever. So that was one problem. And the second problem is we wanted these uh, integration tools, right? Essentially these integration libraries to be as accessible as they possibly could be. Understanding that our audience encompass people from the most senior developers, principal level developers, to people who are just opening a code editor for the first time in their lives, to people who are kind of in that like no code, low code and indie hacker space who, you know, may be have varying levels of comfort with code or no comfort with code and get need to integrate this data for either personal reasons or professional reasons. So we wanted to build something that would accomplish all of those goals. And those goals all seemed kind of hard to, to be able to accomplish at once. But we were struck actually by, you know, relatively, it's a bit not so new anymore, but still kind of new in the life cycle of like software. Uh, you know, the, the service offered by GitHub called GitHub Actions, which if you're not familiar with it or, or if any listeners are not familiar with it, it's basically a runtime environment provided by GitHub. Uh, it's provided to every account, uh, 2,000, I believe, runtime minutes a month which is quite a lot, unlimited runs, unlimited repos you can run it on in your uh, GitHub organization or GitHub account. And you can do a lot with GitHub Actions. Most people who have seen GitHub Actions will have seen it in the context of workflows running their CI, CD uh, deployments. So like, you know, CI checks, testing suites, uh, maybe, you know, managing release flows, things like that. But there is actually so much more you could do with GitHub Actions. The Really, there's really no limit to what you can do with GitHub Actions. It's pretty agnostic as far as uh, what you choose to do with it. And we decided that we would make GitHub Actions one of the prongs of our tooling because, you know, what's really cool about GitHub Actions, uh, Victor, is that like the runtime environment supports almost every language a developer is going to write in today. Mm -hmm. So that accomplishes that first problem, right? So you can write your tool in basically any number of languages, maybe not COBOL. But you can write your, you write your tool yeah. any language today and be happy and, be, and enjoy writing, and it can run on an Actions runtime environment. So, you know, we're not going to say you have to write these tooling in X, Y, or Z, where you could do whatever you want. 
So that accomplished that first step, which opened it up to devs to write in whatever they wanted to. And then the second thing, which was uh, making it accessible, we could talk a bit about how we made it accessible, but uh, we did that essentially by offering actions as a third way to to use the library. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Greenberg from Orbit.love. Check out some of the examples of this uh, GitHub automation. Thank you so much. It was a super exciting thing to um, to talking to you. Um, thank you so much for being a part of uh, Concast. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast using your favorite application so you don't miss a new episode. Don't forget to drop us a comment if you have any questions for today's guests or if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover in the future. For more content from today's guest, you can join us on YouTube to see demo segment from this episode of Comcast. We'll see you next time.